0: Hello and welcome in to Tab's Takes here on WERW from the studios in Shine Underground. I'm your host, Ryan Tab, here with Taylor Kyles. Taylor, thank you for being here today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm very excited.
0: So for those of you who don't know, Taylor Kyles is one of my dear friends at school, but he's also a scouting intern for Syracuse football, and he's a writer for Pat's Pulpit.com. Pat's Pulpit is the SB Nation website for everything Patriots, and one of the things that he does over there that I really enjoy are his uh, Twitter film reviews, and so he'll go on Twitter, and Taylor will pull angles that we can't see when we're watching the game and he'll work through with what the Patriots are doing in particular and and what they do more effectively from a coaching perspective that we can't see as fans and so I wanted to bring Taylor in today after the Super Bowl and we're going to get much more into Super Bowl talk here in a few minutes but I wanted to talk with him from a scouting slash film perspective Mm -hmm. so going into the game Taylor what did you expect to see play out for the Patriots on the offensive side of the football
1: well, on the offensive side, I knew that running the ball was going to be a big key. It's been successful for them. Really, the late part of the season, It was they had a little bit of trouble finding their identity when, uh, unfortunately, Josh Gordon was suspended. But then they turned to rookie Sonny Michel, and he was an absolute monster. He was great against the Chargers. He was excellent against the Chiefs. So I knew that would be a big factor, but because of Aaron Donald and because of Endomic and Sue, and even Dante Fowler, who actually was really underrated going into the game, but someone who ended up having an impact on a few plays, Um, You knew that they were gonna have to throw out at them so different concepts like um if they were gonna run at aaron donald Which they did I looked back at their game against the rams in 2016 and the first play of the game They actually ran right at donald with a double team So I knew that anytime that they were gonna do that It had to be a double team or they'd have to surprise him with which usually a trap or a wham block Which means it's a tight end or a fullback guys who usually don't block defensive tackles will come out of nowhere and kind of hit him quickly enough that they can't really get penetration so I said different things like concepts running the ball running away as much as they could um switching it up on offense and really I had a feeling Brady was going to take a back seat because you know you really don't want him to have the ball in his hands for too long so quick passes screens things like that so right and quick passes.
0: and you mentioned it going back to that 2016 game There's only so much film that these two teams had on each other as far as head-to-head matchups are concerned because they've played uh, so few times head-to-head. And then you mentioned the same thing with Aaron Donald, going away from him. Sometimes you can scheme for a guy like that, but other times you just got to say, that's the reigning two-time defensive player of the year and we got to go away from him at the end of the day.
1: Yep, he's going to beat you. He, he you can, you know, you can have all the double teams you want, but there were times in the 2016 game and it came up again in the Super Bowl. Like sometimes he's just too quick and he splits those double teams because, you know, offensive linemen aren't even out of their snaps. He's just an incredible player.
0: So, did you anticipate that it was going to be a low-scoring game?
1: I did not, honestly. I sneakily felt like it might have been a block for the Patriots which didn't play out obviously I had a I was really confident with Belichick going in against the Rams defense because the defense really came together uh, again towards the end of the season this team really figured it out and they had an excellent secondary their pass rush was starting to come together with you know some schematic things not exactly guys winning one-on-one matchups and their linebackers were really starting to improve a Landon Roberts actually who's a guy not a lot of people know about He gets a lot of crap from Patriots fans because he tends to, you know, overrun gaps sometimes, which was, you know, would be scary against a team like the Rams, and then it was scary against the Chiefs. But he's been really good in that aspect. He's improved in coverage, and he's, I mean, he'll take on offensive linemen coming right at him and just pop him, which, again, he did in the Super Bowl. So um, I thought that they were going to be able to contain the offense, but I didn't see the offense struggling as much as they
0: wound up doing. I think for both teams, considering that they were two of the four highest scoring offenses in football, if you told the Rams they were going to hold the Patriots to thirteen they probably would have been pretty happy with that. They probably would have expected that they were going to come away with a win. And then obviously for the Patriots holding the Rams to three, they would have had the same reaction and they got that outcome. I was surprised at the backseat Tom Brady took, not necessarily because of his of the way he's played this year, because even though, and I'm going to get into this later, but there's so much talk about the way he's progressed through his career and how his, his shortcomings are starting to change with his age and where his strong suits are. And when, I do want to hear your thoughts on this, although it's not necessarily film-based. People want to separate the mental strengths of athletes from the physical talents they have a lot. And when people do that, it's easy for them to knock a guy like Tom Brady and say, well, look, he, he doesn't have the strongest arm, he's not mobile, but, oh, he's so smart, it just doesn't make him the greatest quarterback ever. To me, that's all part of playing the position, or any mm-hmm. sport for that matter. What Your understanding of the game, your intelligence, and then your athleticism too. But the bottom line is he gets the job done because he knows what he can and can't do, and like nobody else I've ever seen follows through with that he doesn't try and step out of his comfort zone ever rarely if if ever he just does what he knows he's capable of and he works within great coaching and and that in and of itself can make somebody the greatest of all time so I, i wonder what you think about that idea that people are trying to separate especially with guys like brady and manning in the past too the mental aspect from the physical aspect and that those are really the whole of a quarterback
1: Well, I think even if you look at the Super Bowl MVP, Julian Edelman, it's the same kind of story. They're all three, Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, Julian Edelman are all guys that don't wow you necessarily, wow most people as athletes. It's just that mentality, that dog mentality, you know, always outworking people, knowing, like you said, limitations is huge because then you don't spend time trying to, you know, practice something that you're never actually going to get. Like Brady can, you know, practice rollouts as much as he wants and to get technically refined. But if you do it too much, I mean, he's not going to have those opportunities much in a game. And just like Edelman, Edelman knows he's not a burner. He knows he's not, you know, six foot four jumping out the gym, but he knows that his change of direction and his quickness are absolutely insane. And he's worked to make those things better. You know, they were good when he came into the league, but that's something he's honed and gotten better at. And also just, you know, the mentality that they they're winners, you know, they right. are willing to do anything to make sure that they walk out of the stadium or whatever they are with the W. And you see it, I mean, when you watch highlights of guys like Edelman and Brady, when they're fired up, you really see it. It's like, you can't be that passionate about something and not really just have a different type of mentality. And that's what ends up pushing you to become, you know, Julian Edelman five years ago, no one would have ever talked about him maybe being in the Hall of Fame. I think that's a little overrated. I don't think. He, oh, I will be getting into that later yeah. because I agree with you. <laughs> but um, the fact that people are talking about it and he's athletically, you wouldn't think that would be possible.
0: But, if there was know, a separate Hall of Fame for playoffs, he'd absolutely have cemented himself there already. Yep. You Patriots talked of Exactly, exactly. He's definitely a New England Hall of Fame, Patriots Hall of Fame kind of guy. So you talked about Edelman and the success he had as well in the Super Bowl, and you, you were telling me on the way in, mm-hmm. different coverage you had been looking at going into that and what you thought the types of success the Patriots could have in the passing game were going to be, where the Rams, especially Robbie Coleman, were going to struggle and how that played out. So what was that that you were telling me before the show?
1: Right, well, the Saints actually really gave what I thought was the blueprint for how the Rams were going to try to defend the Patriots. What the Saints did was they ran the ball a lot, they went empty and would usually displace receivers so they'd have someone like mike thomas in the slot which if it was zone coverage he would be covered by a linebacker and he was going there almost every time and usually they're um wade phillips with uh, marcus peters they really wanted to go more man but marcus peters is a zone corner because he's his technique and man is pretty sloppy he gets beaten easily you kind of saw that against edelman so they play a lot of what's called cover three match or where it's pattern matching, where usually if a receiver's going vertical, instead of a spot drop zone where you're just covering an area of the field, you actually basically, it turns into man. So, you know, um, what I was saying, Nickel Robbie Coleman, I said before the game that he's a very cerebral player. He had some plays against the Saints where you could tell he diagnosed it very quickly and then jumped whatever was coming, which it, just the processing team was incredible. But physically, he's a smaller guy. So I thought that Edelman in man could take advantage of him with his physicality but I knew that in zone, he'd be able to make some plays. Um, so what actually happened was with Brady's interception, again, with a spot drop zone, you're just kind of covering an area. And what Nick Roby Coleman was playing was that match where it becomes man coverage if someone's going vertical. And he was covering because it was cover three. He was covering Dwayne Allen in the slot. Dwayne Allen doesn't get a lot of catches for the Patriots. So he ran a vertical route. And outside of that was a hitch route, which is something that Patriots do all the time. Roby Coleman knew that Allen wasn't gonna get the ball on that play. But it, so instead of taking him up the field, he decided to keep going to the flat. In the way, and you can kind of tell the difference because you knew that he was just going all the way there. Brady actually held his eyes in the middle of the field to make sure that he didn't give it away because it's a risky route because it's shorter. Roby Coleman was in perfect position. Brady looked at the last second pass. Coleman popped it up and then it was intercepted. So. Um, they The coverages they used and the reason it was actually really difficult was they made it look like man a lot of the time with like following receivers across the field when it was actually zone coverage. And that gave Brady something to think about post-snap and with that pass rush it's really hard to put yourself in that position.
0: If you didn't watch the start of the game for whatever reason, if you were out at the store buying last second nachos or guacamole for your friends who were over to watch the game, <laughs> don't even bother because to me that just was more visual, what you just said. That recount of the whole play is more visual than and more understandable and digestible than anything you could possibly get having actually watched the game firsthand because it all happened so fast on screen. But that's why I love going back to the film and having a guy like you who can elaborate on it and explain what we were seeing. So on the flip side of that, for the Rams offense and the Patriots defense, Jared Goff could not get anything going. And the ground game is mostly, to me, where that started. The fact that the Rams were a run first team, they utilized play action a lot, play action screens on top of that. Gurley... I have to assume, was injured and was was at least out of shape because of the injury if he had recovered from that going into the game because there's no reason to underutilize him the way they did. But at the same time, I understand why they nearly entirely abandoned the ground game because at a certain point, they were losing yards on what should have been at least two, three-yard gains at worst. So for the Rams' offense, what did and what didn't they do right? And what did the Patriots do to make that happen?
1: Well, in the Super Bowl, and I think one of the reasons Belichick's had so much success is because he doesn't put players in positions that he hasn't put them in on purpose in the regular season. And that meant towards the end of the regular season with Belichick, the running game was working. And for the Rams, the running game has worked all season. I understand to a degree going away from Gurley, but what about C.J. Anderson? You know, it's uh, Jared Goff showed that he could be a drop-back passer and you know put the team on his back against the Saints, but that's not where he thrives. That's not really a good position to put him in. So I didn't love them going away from the ground game, considering they were still close for almost the entire game. But what the Patriots did a great job of was they – Uh, brought out fronts that made it really intimidating for the Rams to actually run against them. So what they did was they had six men on the line of scrimmage. So it's basically a wide front so that it's really hard for Gurley to get any cutback lanes with that wide zone they like to run, which usually displaces linemen and creates some natural hole just because you're washing them downfield. But there were so many guys there, and then usually Hightower did a really good job of you know tracking the back in the backfield and making sure that he wasn't out of position. But Gurley really didn't have anywhere to run because there were just so much beef up front. So um, and another thing, I the Patriots did an incredible job in coverage. This was something I actually expected going into the game. They've been excellent against the Chiefs, obviously. I think which I think they're by far the best offense in the NFL. I think they're kind of in a different tier um, than the Rams, not by much, but they're just so explosive. And the Rams are explosive. And then the Patriots held the Chiefs with man coverage all game. So you thought, you know what? Like Brandon Cooks is kind of like Tyree Kill. They're both burners. They both like to go deep. You know, maybe they're going to play them in man the same way with maybe a double team on Cooks. And this was a game where the coverage assignments for the Patriots' uh, cornerbacks wasn't as clear, because um, usually Stephon Gilmore gets the bigger guy, and then someone else will cover like the shifty guy. But you know it was kind of different. Um, anyway, so in coverage instead of man, Belichick actually played a lot of quarters coverage, and which is people think of as prevent defense, it's cover four, and it can be if you play it that way. But the way they used it was it was essentially a bracket coverage on the two outside players, and usually the um, the. Rams, all right? they like to use crossing routes and posts, which are deep routes that kind of take advantage of routes like that. But if you have that double bracket over top, it's hard for them to beat it. And they used Jonathan Jones, actually, who's a cornerback. He's the fastest guy on their team. Runs, I think, a low 4-3. They used him as a safety because it was harder for the, for the uh, Rams to get over on him when they were doing the crossing routes because he was just over the top and really taking it away. So uh, the pass coverage was incredible, and the scheme from Belichick was just perfect. And Brian Flores, he was excellent as well, the new Miami coach.
0: This was a game to me where we kind of learned a lesson that even when guys like Sean McVay blow up onto the scene and people didn't expect them to be as successful as they were, as as young as they were and as early on as they did it. Sometimes then you get carried away with this idea that he's an offensive genius and a mastermind and we toss these ideas around. But at the end of the day, there's usually gray area. And within that gray area, gray area Sean McVay can be an offensive mastermind. And yet Bill Belichick, the greatest coach potentially to ever do it, can still show up and stop and stop him because he has so much more experience and McVeigh, this is his first time on a stage like this. And so people want to say, okay, now McVeigh had all these coaching lapses in the game. I don't think it goes that far. I think they're learning experiences, and this is a Rams team that will be back in this position. Then that question turns to the Patriots. Every year, people want to count them out. Now, the team this year, especially in the playoffs, took on that underdog mentality, which bothered me personally because at one point they had been favored for 60 (laughs) consecutive games. Right, 60 consecutive games of being favored, and they want to claim that they're being treated like an underdog. But... Talking heads, at the very least, we're counting them out, and people were talking about Brady being over the hill. Where do you see this team going next year? Uh, do you have concerns about the dynasty itself?
1: As much as people you know, love to say that the Patriots are over because Belichick and Brady aren't getting any younger, uh, Belichick's built a roster that's very deep on talent right now. For example, the offensive line, one of the reasons they were so dominant is because they've had the same offensive line. Marcus Kane in the right tackle has been kind of in and out with injuries at times, usually replaced by like Adrian Waddle, who's also been with the team for a long time. So the continuity they have on that offensive line is incredible. Left tackle Trent Brown was the only player that was new this year. He's probably going to leave in free agency. He's going to, I assume he's going to demand a big contract, but the Patriots have Isaiah Wynn in the fold, their first round pick last year, who's an excellent, excellent um, offensive line prospect. I'm looking forward to seeing him play, but the continuity on the offensive line, I think is going to be one of the key elements of this team for a while. Uh, Brady, I don't think, is going to slow down within the next couple years. I think we're still going to see him, you know, come out and be Tom Brady when he needs to, even if the consistency may not be there. And then on the defense, they've got um, Trey Flowers is going to demand a big contract, but I think that Belichick may be willing to, you know, pay what he's looking for because he's the lifeblood of that defense, and they'll all tell you that. But the secondary with Stefan Gilmore, J.C. Jackson. Uh, Devin McCourty may be retiring, but they still have Durant Harmon, uh, Patrick Chung, Obi Malafonwu, who um, is someone they acquired midseason. And he's a really athletic defensive back. I'm interested to see where they use him in the future. But they've got Kyle Van and Dante Hightower, both guys that should be around for a little bit. Uh, they have the talent to be around for a while, and I think they're going to make another run. Actually, they said that after the Super Bowl. Belichick uh, said to Brady, we're going to be here next year, too, or something along those lines. So, I do sorry, think, guys.
0: I don't think that would surprise anybody at this point. Everybody, like I said, wanted to count them out and then had that realization between the championship game and then the Super Bowl that, we were kind of dumb to count a team out that's this good and, and, and a coaching staff that's got this much history of being this talented. Uh, that's Taylor Kyles for you. Always great analysis. Thank you for being on today. You can follow him at at tkyles39 on Twitter. That's at T-K-Y-L-E-S 39 on Twitter or patspulpit.com. Uh, we're going to go to break, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. And we're back from the basement of shine underground here at the werw studios on tabs takes i'm your host brian tab that was taylor Kyle's we had in the studio doing a great film review for us talking about the super bowl and i want to continue about the super bowl a little bit i want to talk about tom brady and his goat status in the nfl greatest of all time status i want to talk about julian edelman super bowl mvp whether or not he deserved that award And who he compares to in the NBA when we're trying to qualify whether or not this is a guy who deserves to be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So we're going to start with that Tom Brady talk. And Brady's a guy who, in my opinion, is undoubtedly the greatest football player to ever set foot on a football field. He's got six rings. He's got as many rings as as any other franchise in football. In fact, he has more rings than all but two franchises. One is the franchise he won six rings for and the other being the pittsburgh steelers who also have six but with that said there's some nuance here where a guy can be both the greatest quarterback of all time the greatest player of all time in his sport and still be overrated and what i mean by that is there are parts of brady's game that he struggles in and To me, there's a clear drop-off in his game over the past maybe two years, or really this year in particular, compared to when he was younger. But that doesn't mean that he's not the greatest, and I got into this with Taylor just a few minutes ago, in the sense that Brady is able to do things mentally that most athletes are never capable of, which is accept his limitations and understand his strengths. And when you're able to do that kind of thing, you know where you excel. You know exactly where to go, when you need to go there. And you don't make a lot of mistakes trying to do things that, quite frankly, you're not that great at. So you don't have a guy like Tom Brady who struggles out of the pocket and struggles with mobility, trying to roll out and make plays off of bootlegs or, or just scrambling out of the pocket. He knows when to get down. He knows how to get rid of the football. Those are the kinds of plays that for a lot of quarterbacks who stuff the stat sheet, they make those mistakes in critical moments where they try and do too much. And it ends up costing their team. One of the reasons Brady is always in in position to succeed is because he never makes those kinds of mistakes that take him out of the position to make a game-winning drive or to end up winning his sixth Super Bowl. So Brady is exceptionally one of the most cerebral, intelligent, and self-understood players we've ever seen in sports. But yet there's been a fall-off with his arm strength, and he's never been mobile, so it's hard to say he's less mobile now than ever. I mean, the guy's rushing highest 14 yards in a game. But he's still winning. That said, we look at some of the statistics for Tom Brady in the playoffs even when we want to say that this is, this is the time he comes alive and the regular season doesn't matter. And all their losses this season, for example, all the Patriots' losses this season came against teams that did not qualify for the playoffs. Non-playoff teams were the only teams to beat the Patriots this year. And considering they won all their games in the playoffs, that includes their playoff record. So people want to say, oh, Brady shows up when it counts most. And, and he does. I'm not taking away the clutch factor. But Brady has also been surrounded his entire career by great coaching and great players around him. But most importantly, great coaching. He's had top 10 defenses for most of his career in most of his Super Bowl runs. And the same way that we can't knock Tom Brady for losing in last year's Super Bowl when he set a Super Bowl passing record with 505 yards. It's clearly not on him. The offense took care of business. It was the defense that didn't hold the, hold up their end of the bargain. So the same way we can't knock him for that. We can't give him the totality of the credit in a year like this where the offense goes up and puts up 13 points. He throws no touchdowns and one interception. So some interesting Tom Brady stats that I think are important to know. In the playoffs... His record with a passer rating under 78.5. So when he's struggling to throw the football on more than 25 attempts. So we're not talking about quarterbacks who who are part of ground games that don't throw the ball more than 25 times a game. We're talking about games when quarterbacks get plenty of opportunities to throw the ball. And their passer rating is under 78.5. Tom Brady, his record is 10-4, winning percentage of 71.4. Every other quarterback in NFL history record is eighty nine. And 307 for a winning percentage of 22.5%. In playoff games, where the quarterback throws more interceptions than touchdowns, dating back to 2001, on a minimum of 33 attempts. So again, situations where these teams are throwing the football a lot. In the past 18 years, Tom Brady, with more interceptions than touchdowns in the playoffs. 6-4. 60% winning percentage. Every other quarterback combined Four wins, 51 losses, winning percentage of 7.3%. Tom Brady finished this NFL postseason, this Super Bowl run. He finished this Super Bowl run just on Sunday. The one that ended on Sunday after Tom Brady took took care of the Chiefs and he took care of the Rams and he won a sixth Super Bowl. He finished with two touchdowns and three interceptions. He's now won two Super Bowls, leading his offense to 13 points. And the last statistic, just, just to qualify that and put it in perspective, Aaron Rodgers has scored at least 20 points in every single one of his playoff losses, whereas Brady has now, like I said, won two Super Bowls with 13 points. People like to reference statistics like that to take down a guy like Tom Brady. But there's a reason Tom Brady is 6-4 and four in those interception games, and there's a reason that he's 10-4 in that passer rating under 78.5, and there's a reason nobody else has those kinds of records. And the reason for that is what I was getting at earlier. The mental fortitude to understand himself, to know and accept, not just to know, plenty of players know their limitations, know their strengths, know their weaknesses, but to accept them. There's another example of this in sports. Ben Simmons, point guard for the Philadelphia 76ers. Awful, awful, awful three-point shooter. Brilliant finisher at the rim, brilliant passer. And if you go on social media, the perception you're going to get about Ben Simmons is he's too scared to shoot a three. Well, I would argue he might be the smartest point guard in the NBA then. He understands his weaknesses. He practices three-pointers. He's getting better at them, but he understands his weaknesses. In Ben Simmons' career in the NBA, he has one three-point attempt. It was an end-of-quarter heave that meant nothing from half-court, and he missed it. That was a few weeks ago. Before that, zero three-point attempts in his NBA career. The guy's an all-star reserve. He's one of the rising stars in the NBA. And he's doing what Tom Brady did and has done his whole career and continues to do that makes him so special, which is understand himself and accept what his strengths and weaknesses are. So to me, Tom Brady is not invincible. Tom Brady is not an automatic championship. But if you put him in position to win, he will come through for you every single time and he will never take you out of that position you can't say that about a lot of other athletes in history. So on that end, we've covered Tom Brady. And as I said before, we're going to talk about Julian Edelman. Now, there are a lot of respected voices in the NFL NFL stratosphere. Let's call it that. Guys like Adam Schefter, insiders in the NFL, people who break news, people who have a really good understanding of the league. Adam Schefter tweeted out that he thinks Edelman is playing his way into a spot in Canton. And Taylor, who was on the show just a few minutes ago, big Patriots fan loves the team loves everyone on the team he said it here a few minutes ago he said it's ridiculous and it is it is if we had a playoff Hall of Fame it'd be a different story Edelman is second all time in playoff receiving yards but there's a reason there's a very important reason that we do not go by postseason statistics in general everybody in the NFL has an opportunity to play 16 games not everyone gets the opportunity to play more it's a team game and we know that We know that, generally speaking, one guy does not make or break an NFL team season. There are 11 guys on offense, there are 11 on defense, and more or less, guys are subbing in and out on top of that. There are a lot of players involved, and that doesn't even include special teams. A lot of guys involved in making the playoffs. In the regular season, in just career, in his career, the statistics we generally go by that equalize everybody in sports, regular season statistics, the great equalizer. Julian Edelman is 248th in receiving. That's not a Hall of Fame number. In a league, we're getting in the Hall of Fame is borderline impossible for some guys based off of what? Their personality? Julian Edelman, it's insulting as a fan to hear people say that he's playing his way into Canton. So who is Julian Edelman's cross-sport comparison. Who is he most like? What kind of career are we talking about getting into the Hall of Fame? Let's compare him to somebody in the NBA. Somebody whose career has no shot at making him a Hall of Fame finalist. In a sport where it's significantly easier to make the Hall of Fame. The NBA Hall of Fame is not, I'm not saying it's easy to get into. Getting in the Hall of Fame in any sport is one of the most coveted things you can do in a career. It's one of the most challenging and honorable things you can do. But It's significantly easier to get into the NBA Hall of Fame than the NFL Hall of Fame. Julian Edelman, at this point in his career, is Derek Fisher. Derek Fisher, three hundred twenty-third scoring in the in NBA history. Edelman, two hundred forty-eighth receiving. We're talking about a seventy-position difference. That's significant, but we're also talking about about a guy who, in the playoffs, has been incredibly clutch. Derek Fisher was known for his tenacious defense in the playoffs. He was getting steals for the Lakers. He hit clutch threes in the 2010 finals to win the Lakers that series, potentially save Kobe Bryant. The .4 second shot, maybe the all-time most clutch shot in NBA history, came at the hands of none other, other than Derek Fisher. Incredibly clutch, like Edelman. Incredibly clutch in the playoffs. But Derek Fisher is not a Hall of Fame basketball player. If I sat up here and told you guys that Derek Fisher should be in the Hall of Fame, you'd turn off the show because that's idiotic and we're all prisoners of the moment and we all love what Edelman's doing and it is beautiful and you cannot knock the guy his career path is something Hollywood couldn't write any better where he came from to where he is now we may have never seen a player do what he's done the challenges he's had to overcome and then the success he's had on the biggest stages But that is not enough to get you into the Hall of Fame in the NFL, let alone the conversation. Odell Beckham Jr., a guy a lot of people talk about as one of the three best receivers in the NFL. He has 28 total in his playoff career, 28 total receiving yards. He's played one game. He had 28 yards. Now you tell me who you'd rather have. And you tell me who'd be more successful with the Patriots, Edelman or OBJ. These are the things I'm talking about when I say that regular season is the great equalizer. Odell Beckham Jr. plays on a mess of a team. And yes, his personality and and his ability to get fired up at the wrong times and sometimes the right times has contributed to his team being bad. And he's also, his level of play has carried his team to some of the wins they've had. Some of the very few they've had in the past couple of years, but some of the wins they've had. It is no fault of Odell Beckham in the big picture that his team is not in the playoffs. But I guarantee you, if he was on the Patriots... things would look a lot different. And if you did the same analysis with a postseason Hall of Fame in mind or something like that, OBJ would be a runaway favorite. After that Super Bowl, a lot of Rams fans were disappointed. A lot of Rams players understandably disappointed. You work your whole season to get there. So our quote of the day comes from Rams lineman Andrew Whitworth after the game when he was asked about their performance and how he's feeling and what the locker room experience is like. He said, at the end of the day, we're all going to die. And that's true. And that's true. And that's bleak. But then, but then, and here's where it's important. Andrew Whitworth carried on. At the end of the day, we're all going to die. But who you are, how you carry yourself, whether you pout and feel sorry for yourself is the only thing that's going to matter, Whitworth said. That's what people are going to remember you for. Excuse me. That's what people are going to remember you for. So for me, what means the most is that the guys see me holding my head up high. They see me confident in them and loving them and there for them in any way I can moving forward. And I like this quote. That's why I picked it as the quote of the day. Because it starts out bleak. At the end of the day, we're all going to die. And when you hear that at first, you say, yeah, so it's all worthless. Super Bowl's worthless, whatever. No, what he's saying here and what he continued on to say and made very clear Is that because of that you have to have the biggest impact you can on other people in that short life and sometimes you come up short sometimes you lose the Super Bowl but your life doesn't end with the Super Bowl your life ends much later on and so because your life didn't end on Sunday because even though your hopes and dreams fell through when you were that close you have to keep keeping on and setting a good example for your teammates or your friends or your family or anyone you interact with and if you do that there will be opportunities again to get back to the Super Bowl and to win games and to once again be a great teammate. So Andrew Whitworth, thank you for our quote of the day. I love that quote. There's one that snuck up on me. I found that last night. I tried to find a quote as close to the time of the show as possible and I did hear that quote on Sunday night, the original part. At the end of the day, we're all going to die and that was something that was put on social media and overlaid on photos and it was funny. But until last night, I actually didn't see most of the quote, the whole part that came after that. So if you didn't either, I hope that was something for you to hear now for the first time and enjoy. We're actually kind of going backwards in time here because we just covered the Super Bowl and now we're going back to the NFL playoffs as a broader topic. But one of the highlights of this NFL postseason or lowlights, depending on who you're a fan of, was overtime. Overtime is great. It's suspenseful. It's borderline sudden death in the NFL at this point. Your whole season, everything you've worked for, rides on one to two drives. But, people are not satisfied with the rules of overtime in the NFL. And I'm one of those people. I am not satisfied with the way that the NFL does overtime. For a lot of reasons. The first thing you'll hear people say who are critics of the overtime rules... Is that it's not fair it's not fair because guys like patrick mahomes in the afc championship game the nfl mvp the 50 touchdown 5,000 yard machine wasn't allowed to touch the football in a game where the winner of a coin toss can go score a touchdown and win that doesn't seem very fair and the counter to that argument is just play defense those three words just play defense it is fair your defense is on the field just play defense I don't necessarily disagree with that mindset of just play defense. My issue is that it's not that simple. If you just play defense, if you go out there and do what the Rams did, get a stop against the Saints, if you go out there and do that, you just play defense. The end result is you end up with the ball and still have to take care of business on offense. You have to do twice the work that the opposing offense does. They win the coin toss, they drive, they win. You get a stop, you still have to drive and win. So here's my proposal. It's out there. It's a little crazy, and it will never happen. I can guarantee you that. If there's one guarantee I can make on this show, it's that my NFL overtime rules proposal will never happen, and you will never see it play out on an NFL stage. In fact, you'll probably never see it play out in any capacity. I can almost guarantee that, too. But I think that we should not ignore the argument of just playing defense. So I got to thinking and I said, how can we change, not the argument, but what they're arguing about. How can we make the argument right? Because there's a vast proponent, vast majority of people, players and fans alike, media members who argue that. And it doesn't make them wrong. It they can They can be wrong about the actual impact that defense has on overtime without being wrong about the mindset as to why you should just play defense, why both teams don't necessarily deserve a chance to possess the football, why it should be a team game. They argue it's a complete football game, it's a complete unit. They're testing that. That's what overtime tests. That's the separator because it's not just an offensive game. So here's what I propose. The coin toss remains the deciding factor in who gets the ball. But the but a defensive stop wins the game as does a touchdown. There are no punts allowed, there are no field goals allowed. So we go to the Patriots Chiefs. Let's say we're going back to overtime. Patriots win the toss. They decide they want to keep the football. They drive down the field. They score their touchdown as they did. They win the game. That's it. In that instance, nothing would have changed. And Patrick Mahomes would not have gotten an opportunity to touch the football. And that's okay. Why is that okay? Because his defense had an equal chance to win the game as the offense. If the defense does their job and gets a stop and four downs, game over. Defensive team wins. If the offense scores with four downs to work with, marching down the field, offensive team wins. If you make it fair where the argument, just play defense. If you make it fair where that argument holds up and playing defense is equal to playing offense, then I think we've got an incredibly exciting system in overtime. Think about how many fourth downs with the game on the line you would get. A team with a decision to make. Do we trust our offense? Do we trust our defense? Maybe we do trust our defense, but not as much as we trust their offense, so we're going to put our offense out there just because we don't want to see Pat Mahomes with the ball. Then you've made it fair. But there are still small issues. This is a league where offense is heavily favored. And if we look at the statistics of what people have been able to do in overtime, in 2010, NFL overtime was full sudden death. Field goal wins the game, touchdown wins the game. If you put points on the board, you win the toss, you put points on the board, You've won. In 2010, they changed that just for the postseason. So regular season remains sudden death. But in the postseason, field goal extends the game as it does now, but a touchdown wins it. Those are the rules that we go by now. And then in 2012, after two years doing that for the playoffs, they adopted that for the regular and postseason. People who want to tell you that it's not fair when the offense gets the ball first are wrong in the category of win percentage at least. Since 2010, excuse me, since 2010 postseason, and in 2012 regular season, counting that too, the team that possesses the football first wins 52.7% of the time. I would say that that's a pretty even statistic. You're not going to get an exact 50. 52.7% of the time is about as good as you can get with the system. But, If you look at things with a little more nuance, which we don't love to do in sports, we love to be black and white. We love to say 52%, it's even. Or Mahomes didn't get the ball, it's unfair. Just play defense. All these blanket statements, they don't hold up. You have to look at things with nuance. You have to consider the gray area. What about in the playoffs? Are teams better in the playoffs? Are offenses generally that are good, do they make the playoffs? Do bad teams not make the playoffs? Yes. So what about in the playoffs? Well, in the playoffs, since the new rule adaptation, so since 2010, There have been eight games that have gone to overtime. Five of them ended on the first drive. Now, that is a small sample size, but think about who was left on the sideline. These are the quarterbacks who did not get to touch the ball in overtime, in playoffs. Ben Roethlisberger, Hall of Fame quarterback. Aaron Rodgers, Hall of Fame quarterback. MVP quarterback. Twice! Aaron Rodgers was left on the sideline twice. That's two times in the playoffs that Aaron Rodgers had to watch his team get eliminated Because he didn't get to touch the football. Matt Ryan, that's an MVP. And this year, Patrick Mahomes, another MVP. Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame MVP twice. MVP, MVP. Those are the guys who've been left on the sideline. Because offenses are better in the playoffs. And in all likelihood, those guys would have done the exact same thing to the team they were playing against, which is march down the field and score. When you look at the fact that the top four offenses in football made it to championship weekend, that becomes very clear. It's not about the likelihood to win. We're looking at that. I'm saying it's 52.7% of the time that the offense wins. It's not about the likelihood that you win. It's about the opportunity and the control to decide what you want to do to get that win. Now, there have been some other ideas proposed. The college football model. People don't like that because they say you can't have guys play extended games. You start at the 25-yard line. NFL offenses are going to score nonstop. And, And I see the problems with that. There could be some tweaks. You could start further back. You could eliminate field goals and start with touchdowns only at the start of overtime there are opportunities to tweak that and then there's an auction concept and I find this really interesting an auction concept so each coach comes to center field with the referee and the referee auctions off yard lines whichever team is willing to start the closest to their own goal line possesses the football so he'll mark mark down all right 49 going once going twice 48 going once going twice all the way down to 20 15 at 15 Patriots say, you know what, we'd rather play defense and stop you from going 85 yards. And the Chiefs say, we'll take it at the 15. Chiefs get the ball. That's another fair way to do it. Again, it's not necessarily about the the statistical probability that you win, but about the opportunity to control how you win and be the team that goes out and earns the victory, not be at the effect of the other team. NFL postseason drama. There is a lot of it. There's a lot of it. But if you look at the three things that have been pretty big deals in this postseason... The biggest of which is that overtime issue. You can solve it; it's solvable if you just give it a little bit of thought. And I will say the one other issue, the one that I didn't talk about, because we talked about Edelman, we talked about overtime issues, is the Saints Rams game, the no call, the Roby Coleman pass interference helmet-to-helmet contact. Saints fans, I'm talking directly to you right now. You got to get over it. You are not the first team to have been screwed by a bad call. And you are not the last team to have been screwed by a bad call. And on top of it, maybe this is harsh. Maybe this is insensitive to the fans who had no control over it. When people say, Drew Brees, stand-up guy, he didn't deserve that. Drew Brees was a Man of the Year award finalist. I, I don't recall if he won it, but he may have. Great, great human being. You know what else Drew Brees was involved in? A bounty gate. And Saints fans, when they hear that, they immediately say, well, we weren't the only team in the NFL doing it. Yeah, you were. Do some research. Understand that the only, only, only confirmation that any team may have had anything similar in place was one Vikings player's quote taken out of context saying that other players were rewarding each other for big hits. That's it. The Saints had a full-blown pay-for-injury bounty system. I do not have sympathy for a team that's, that spent years and a coaching staff, mind you, that's still there. And a quarterback who was on that team and didn't say anything, no matter how good of a man he is in other circumstances. I do not have sympathy. I do not feel sorrow for a team like that that was intentionally ending people's careers, ending their seasons, impacting their longevity. I don't feel bad. It's unfortunate. You got screwed. You move on. Things played out as they otherwise would have. And oh, mind you, you won the toss, had a chance to win it, and you didn't take care of business. That's the bottom line. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. One of the great things, actually, before I go to break about having a solo show, I get to pick the music and you can pretty much guarantee that when I get to pick the music we go to break on, it's going to be some Bruce Springsteen, the boss, my favorite artist of all time. So while I'm on break, enjoy Born to Run. We'll be back in five. It pains me to do it. It pains me to turn off Bruce Springsteen. It pains me to turn off that great, great song. But unfortunately, I got to do it. Time constraints. And you're here to hear sports, not here to hear music, no matter how good it is. I'm Ryan Tabb. We're back on Tabs Takes. WER Studios, Shine Underground, here at Syracuse University. Let's get into some NBA talk. Almost the trade deadline. February 7th is the trade deadline. Things are heating up. What day is it today? February 6th. We got one more day. Midnight tomorrow? That's it. No more trades in the NBA. For now, we got a lot of exciting things to talk about. Uh, The first major trade that came pretty early, actually, as far as the trade deadline is concerned and cut a lot of people off guard, Kristaps Porzingis, out of New York. He's gone. The unicorn, no longer a Nick. Goes to Dallas. Dallas gets Tim Hardaway Jr., Courtney Lee, and Kristaps Porzingis. New York gets Dennis Smith Jr., and the expiring deals of DeAndre Jordan and Wesley Matthews. Essentially, New York got cap space. And Dennis Smith Jr. Who's a nice young prospect. So here's what the Knicks did. They banked their entire future on the opportunity to sign two max contracts this offseason. They can afford that and not a lot of teams can do that. So in that right, great move. They sent away a 7-3 pure shooting big. Who people called a unicorn because we'd never seen a guy like that in the NBA. Not so great on that front. Now, yes, Chris Dobbs had his injury history. But it wasn't so concerning. He hadn't gotten so far into his career that it felt like they had to trade him. Now, one thing I have not heard anybody discuss, and people who are proponents of the trade, people who are against it, it's all irrelevant in this case. You're either saying that you like the Knicks banking on their future, or you would have liked the Knicks to build around Porzingis. That's all irrelevant. The real issue here has nothing to do with whether or not this trade was the right trade to make. The issue is the timing of the trade. The timing. That's it. It's all timing. So people are saying that this trade opens up those two max deals and they're going to go after Kevin Durant and they must have his word otherwise they wouldn't have made this trade and do you think they could be such an incompetent of a franchise to make a decision like this without the word of Kevin Durant well let me tell you two things one yes I do believe they are that incompetent I believe they have proven that incompetence and moreover I do not trust the word of Kevin Durant even if he gave it to them because I don't think Kevin Durant knows what he wants to do this offseason maybe it was Kyrie Maybe it was Kyrie who said it. Maybe Kyrie was the guy who said, You have my word. Maybe Kyrie wants out of Boston. He's been wavering over there. He started off saying the saying earlier in the year, I will resign if you guys will have me back. And at this point, he said, I don't know anybody. I don't owe anybody expletive. Maybe it was Kyrie. You know who else's word I don't trust? Kyrie. Why? Not because these guys are liars. Because I don't think they necessarily know what they want. Kyrie's been all over the place this season, calling and apologizing to LeBron James, figuring out what it means to be a leader, deciding whether or not he wants to be that guy. And Kevin Durant, we've seen run from team to team now. I don't think it's good to bank your future on these two guys. Now, I'm not criticizing the deal. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with clearing that cap space. But in my mind, Porzingis is, A, half the draw for a guy like Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving. They want to go play with a guy like Porzingis, a special guy, Who fundamentally is sound who's not a ball hog goes out there and scores runs the floor athletically a freak at that size now that now that lore is gone that draw is gone but here's the big thing and this like i was saying the timing is the biggest issue july 1st july 1st is when free agency starts again in the nba july 1st is when all these contracts expire and guys can go sign wherever they want july 1st is when we got the great saga that ended up not being true about Mark Cuban driving around, DeAndre Jordan in his house, et cetera, et cetera, all these great, the Banana Boat crew, all these great NBA storylines, they happen on July 1st. If Kevin Durant had approached the Knicks on June 30th and said, I'd like to sign in New York, can you have the papers ready tomorrow? The Knicks could have sent Christops to Dallas on June 30th. With Kevin Durant's word, just a day prior to him signing. They could have easily waited. They would have cleared up the same space. Now, they wouldn't have been able to move DeAndre Jordan, and they wouldn't have been able to move Wesley Matthews because those deals would have expired, but there are other ways to work around that. They could have moved guys elsewhere for other deals that would expire within a year or so, or smaller deals. Or, hey, just find a guy like Kemba Walker who might not be able to get a max anywhere, Now, Kemba's played himself into a max contract. That's the issue. The issue is Kemba has played himself into a max contract, but at his age, he's not worth it. So I don't know if the market's going to cough up that money for him. Maybe you bank on that. Maybe you keep Porzingis, have your one max slot, and just sign Durant. The thing is, if you wait until July 1st, excuse me, or June 30th to make the trade, and then July 1st to make all the signings, you have all the opportunities in the world and the security blanket of being able to hold on to Porzingis. All they did now is make the move too early where they've cornered themselves. If the Knicks do not land a big free agent this offseason, if they don't land two free agents, if they land one, they could have done that anyway. If they don't land two big free agents this offseason, they've screwed themselves. And for what? Just to have it earlier? Just to make make it known that they're interested? Yeah, we get it. The Knicks are interested in big free agents. This is no statement that put the league on notice. They sent away the best player they've had in a long time for something they could have gotten without having to send him away. Or they could have sent them away with a guarantee by waiting until the summer. Which brings us to our fast fact of the week. Our fast fact this week is that the Knicks' last draft pick, the last player the Knicks drafted, who signed a multi-year contract after his rookie deal, was Charlie Ward who was drafted in 1994. That is how incompetent this organization has been under the ownership of James Dolan. That is how many players they've driven away or how many players they've poorly drafted to the the point that they do not want to sign them to an extended multi-year contract after their rookie one. That's how incompetent this organization has been. And so when people ask you, do you really believe the Knicks would do this without knowing Kevin Durant was for sure coming? I tell you, yes, I do believe that. They are that incompetent. Big trade happened earlier today, actually one that is more relevant to the landscape this season, because Porzingis isn't going to play in Dallas. Dallas pretty much said, all right, we'll wash this year, move on to next year, and they're going to be absolutely disgusting with Luka Doncic, Rookie of the Year this year, one of the best youngest players in the league already, at least on the offensive side of the basketball, and Porzingis. 76ers made a trade with the LA Clippers. Sixers got Tobias Harris, who is an all-star. averaged 21 and 8 rebounds this year on 40% shooting. Boban Marjanovic, the fan favorite. Boban, and this this is something, just going back to the Knicks a little bit, is tied for the tallest player in the league at 7'3". Boban is a fan favorite. Boban is fun to watch. Boban is one of the most immobile people I've ever watched in my life. So to understand that he is tied for the tallest player in the league with Porzingis, and yet Porzingis can run the floor, and Porzingis can hit the three ball. And Boban can come in and give you seven to eight minutes off the bench of I stand in the paint and I'm tall that's the kind of player the Knicks gave away and the Sixers got Mike Scott so Tobias Harris and Jimmy Butler are unrestricted free agents this summer the Knicks made it or excuse me the 76ers made it very clear they're going to go after them and try and sign them and establish that big four they're going to re-sign those guys and have Ben Simmons Jimmy Butler Tobias Harris Joel Embiid now that is a four a set of four guys a big four that if they mesh, should be able to come out of the East this year, if not years to come. On the other side of that trade, the Clippers, they got Wilson Chandler, Mike Muscala, Landry Schmidt. A 2020 Philly pick and a 2021 Miami pick, which is a coveted pick, along with two second-round picks from the future. Now Chandler and Muscala, they they uh, they expire this summer. So those are clearing contracts just for cap space. And Landry Schmidt has been good as a rookie. Eight points on 44% from two and 40% from 3. East just got interesting. Now we knew Philly was good. But people were looking at Philly as the fourth best team in the East. The main questions were, can the Bucks keep this up in the playoffs? Will the Raptors raptor again, whatever whatever verb that is to raptor, whatever they do every year, whatever they've done for every year in the past in the playoffs, will they will they fall apart again? Will they collapse? Will they be the best team in the East all regular season and somehow the worst in the playoffs? Will the Celtics get out of the slump? Will they be able to get up for games that aren't the big games? The Celtics this season have been incredible on the big stage, national TV, when they take on the Warriors, when they take on the Thunder, when they take on the Raptors, when they take on the Bucks. The Celtics have been great. When they play everybody else, they don't seem to wake up. Coaching, leadership, I don't know, but that's the question about the Celtics. And that seemed to be it seemed to be a three horse race in the race in the East we knew that the sixers were going to be a threat we knew they could take some people to seven games but nobody really looked at the 76ers this season with the way the East is currently constructed and how it's played out this season. Nobody looked at the 76ers to make the NBA Finals but that's maybe not only realistic now but they may have played themselves into the favorite spot. <clears throat> Excuse me they may have played themselves into the favorite spot. This is a huge trade for both teams. Clippers are clearing a lot of cap space. They're going to go after some big free agents this summer. They've been a team that surprisingly has been listed in most most big stars who have demanded trades recently. They've listed the Clippers as one of their preferred destinations. Never their first choice, but they've been in the conversation. That tells you that the league dynamic, the feeling about the Clippers amongst players, coaches, executives in the NBA, the feelings are changing. This team is no longer laughing stock of the NBA and players are willing to go to the Clippers they may not have the brand association association of the Lakers but hey they play in the same facilities they play in the same city they pay the same money and they've got a, a promising young core so the Clippers are on business right now If they can land a big free agent a couple other deals we got going on the Blazers Portland Trail Blazers made a trade for Rodney Hood so they got Rodney Hood. That's all they got in this deal. The Cavs got Wade Baldwin, Nick Stauskas, two future second round picks. So the Cavs essentially got Cavs space and picks. The Blazers got Rodney Hood. That is a complimentary guard. Do not be fooled. Do not be fooled. People want to tell you Rodney Hood is a sharpshooter. This guy has never shot over 39% for a season from threes in his career. Rodney Hood is not a sharpshooter. Rodney Hood is struggling as the guy in Cleveland. Rodney Hood is the perfect complimentary guard For C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard. He's going to shoot well when he gets good looks. And he's going to get looks because he's not going to be the guy. That's why he's struggling in Cleveland. But he's not a sharpshooter. He's a complimentary guard. And for the Blazers, you have to ask yourself, do you feel like you're in position to make a run in the playoffs? Was this the move that put you in that position? Obviously not. Is anybody talking about the Blazers? Does anybody truly believe that the Blazers are going to be the team to make it out of the West? No. Nobody thinks the Blazers will beat the Rockets. Nobody thinks the Blazers will beat the Lakers if they make the playoffs. Maybe they'll beat the Nuggets. But at this point, I think we're all just saying the Nuggets are vulnerable because they have been in the past. This is number one team in the West, record-wise. Nuggets, they deserve their due respect. So I don't think the Blazers can beat the Nuggets in the playoffs, even with Rodney Hood. They can't beat Oklahoma City. This is not a team that became a finals caliber team by this move. I think they should have held on to their future a little bit or seen if they could get something else. Something that maybe has potential to turn into something bigger than a Rodney Hood. And finally, as we wrap up the show, Anthony Davis. What's the deal with Anthony Davis? I'm going to tell you right now, Anthony Davis is not going to get moved before the trade deadline tonight. He's going to finish out the season in New Orleans. Now, I could be wrong about that, but considering... How few trade talks the Pelicans have at least publicly been engaged in with other teams and what they demanded of the Lakers Magic Johnson finally realized he was bidding against himself he was in a bidding war against himself they were sitting and leaving him on red they were waiting for him to call back and outbid himself when they finally asked for four first round picks Magic laughed in their face and hung up the phone and that was the right move the Lakers would be great with Anthony Davis but I still do not think with just Anthony Davis they're beating the Warriors and for that reason you wait you sit you wait You don't leverage your entire future on one guy. That's all the time we have today. Thank you for tuning in to Tabs Takes. It's been a great time being on the air talking about what I love most, and that's sports. You give us a follow at Tabs Takes on Twitter. That's at T-A-B-B-S-T-A-K-E-S or anchor.fm slash Tabs Takes. All that will be linked in my Twitter too. I'm your host, Ryan Tab at R-Y-T-A-B-B on Twitter. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next week.